You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Let's go. I want to invite you now into our continuing journey through the Gospel of Matthew. This is uh, the first book in the New Testament. So if you don't have a Bible, please grab that paperback Bible you'll see in the chair, in the, in the, in the, the tray of the chair in front of you. Uh, make that our gift to you if you don't have a Bible. Otherwise, a smartphone or a Bible you can get access to, or a friend uh, that's sitting next to you would love for you to look over their shoulder to see it as well. We'll be in the first gospel, the first book of the New Testament. The word gospel simply means good news. And the first four books of the New Testament, Ma- Testament Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels, are telling the good news of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. And so we've been walking through this journey of the gospel of Matthew as Matthew's been introducing us to Jesus. And and we've come to this kind of part in the story where after Jesus has been introduced through his miraculous birth, his powerful teaching, the, the crowds he's gathering and the works of mighty miraculous acts that he's performing, the, the tide starts to turn, the tone gets darker, and the animosity against Jesus begins to rise. I, I don't know, there's something in me that kind of wants to tell this story like there's a surprise ending, but I guess, spoiler alert, you see the cross on the outside of the building They hate him. They turn on him. He tells them things that they do not want to hear to the point where they turn him over to be crucified. And you'll see that tone begin to change in the last few weeks as well as where we find ourselves here in the Gospel of Matthew in the 15th chapter. We're going to read the first 20 verses as we begin to see the animosity. Even though the crowds are still gathering around Jesus, this parallel growth that's, that's happening alongside the, the fame and renown and the crowds that are following Jesus is growing parallel to the frustration, the misunderstanding, and even the outright animosity to where we saw a few chapters ago they have plotted to assassinate or kill, eliminate Jesus. So beginning in chapter 15, you begin to see that subplot start to emerge even more. Beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 15. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if one tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. 
And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the stomach passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. When I was about four or five, maybe old enough to know better, my parents told my brother and I to wash our hands after playing outside and get ready to come downstairs for dinner. And uh, being the younger brother, uh, my greatest delight is to make my older brother laugh uh, or to make my parents laugh, right? That's how we're making up for you know, not being the older brother, right? And so we go into the bathroom together, and my brother starts to wash his hands. And just to be funny, I go over to the commode, the toilet, the loo, whatever you want to call it. It's gross, whatever it is. And I begin to wash my hands down in the toilet. I mean, it was funny, right? It was like I got soap, and then and I looked up at my brother, and he laughed, and I won, and it was, it was hilarious. We go downstairs, and to make it even funnier, I, we, we sit down at the table, and I, I, I told my parents, like, yeah, I, I wash my hands in the toilet, <laughs> and they laughed. Like, it was a funny, funny, funny time, right? But the joke was on me, because I still just sat there at the table. I mean, I washed my hands in the commode, and it was, a, I mean, it was clean. It had been flushed, right? Certainly, that's, that's clean water coming out of there, right? And, and I sat down at the table, but the joke was on me because I really was like, no, that's good. That's, it's clean enough. And again, probably old enough to know better, but my mom gets very stern and serious and is like, that's disgusting. <laughs> Go over to the sink and wash your hands with soap. Now, I, you know, I wish my mother had read what Jesus said. It's that's not ultimately what defiles us. To eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anyone, mother. But those words were pretty powerful. Because it was a joke. Ha, 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 I'm washing my hands in a commode. We all know that's dirty. But I was old enough to know better, and the joke was on me because I still thought, you know, that's good enough for me to eat. And my mom's words were pretty powerful. That's disgusting. Go wash your hands. And you'll see here in a story of washing hands, we'll come back to this. Jesus is teaching a powerful lesson. What I might argue is one of the most powerful lessons in the entirety of the Gospel of Matthew. If you're a highlighting, underlining person in your Bible, this is the place to do it. And it was based on that same kind of silly joke that was on me. What really is clean? What does it mean to be unclean? The religious language here or the biblical language is defile. That is to make unclean, to, to make separate by means of being kind of 
associated with or connected to that which is reprehensible or dirty. And so there's two sections here, broken out pretty easily if you have an ESV, but uh, you kind of have two sections with three different scenes. The, the first part, section one, let's say, is the first nine verses. And I've used up all of my creative alliterations um, in the last two sermons, and so now it's just part one and part two. So part one, the first nine verses, the Pharisees come to question Jesus. Did you hear that? They actually came out of Jerusalem. This is one of the first mentions of Jerusalem. It's meant to have this kind of ominous feel to it because while it has a a rich history as a holy city, it becomes the climax of the end of this or the climax of the story where Jesus will ultimately be betrayed, handed over, and crucified. The second part, Jesus begins to, in light of the questions and the challenges and even accusations that the Pharisees come to make against him, Jesus teaches the crowds and his disciples about how one really is defiled or what really is the nature of being clean and unclean. So you see kind of the the two parts, but the three scenes. Did you see the, the three different scenes? The first one, it says the Pharisees. So the first nine verses, the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus. That's who he's speaking to. The second scene begins in verse 10. Did you hear it? And he called the people. So the next two verses, it's as if he's speaking again to a crowd of people. And then in verse 12, then the disciples came. So you've got three different interactions, one with the Pharisees, one with the crowd, and one with the disciples. Kind of gives a model, I think, I, uh, I hope you kind of hear us uh, try, to, try to emulate even as a church of what discipleship looks like, how Jesus is interacting with kind of these religious opponents, with the crowds, and then with his disciples. And they come saying that Jesus is unclean in the first part, and that spins him off into a powerful teaching about what it really means to be unclean. They come accusing Jesus of being unclean by not honoring their traditions, and Jesus begins to respond by teaching about what it really means to be unclean. Part one, they they simply uh, come and say, hey, watch what goes into your mouth, right? Why don't you wash your hands like we do? And instead of responding directly, he refutes them with another question about another one of their practices, about honoring parents, which leads to the second part of him teaching that what comes out of your mouth is ultimately what matters. That is that your heart is the problem. The uncleanness in your hands, and even in this case, maybe your lips, is nothing compared to the uncleanness that is exposed in our hearts. The example we get here, Jesus gives of things that come out of the heart. He gives us a list of things that are evil that emerge from our own hearts. They're not just things that you do, Jesus wants us to know, though. They are evidence of who you really are. So, let's start with the first verse there in chapter 15, in that first part. And then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Now, again, I told you this is one of the first mentions of Jerusalem. It's going to get more and more ominous that as he makes his way back to Jerusalem, you're, you're meant to already, according to Matthew, kind of start to realize, like, not all the good things, not all good things come from Jerusalem. It's, and, and it's really interesting. It's like they came down uh, by means of elevation, but it's like, they, it's like they, left, they left central headquarters to come see what was going on. I mean, Jesus has already been teaching in some of these synagogues because he was a rabbi and, and, and had, that, had that privilege. But it's, it's as if they're like, 
okay, we need to go check this out. So they come down from Jerusalem and pose a question. And, and the question is a loaded question, like many of the loaded questions we'll see in the Gospel of Matthew. But this one is more of an accusation. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, we have to do kind of a crash course in what we'll describe as the, the moral law of the Bible and a, a ceremonial law that points to the cleanliness that God requires as we come to him. And it's an allusion here probably to, uh, uh, to, to what was an oral tradition, right? You kind of had like, here's the laws, here we know, here's what we do. But then there's the kind of the things that we understand that you're supposed to do. And they were equating the two. They were equating their customs with the moral law. And so they had come and, and essentially, by means of a question, accuse Jesus of not following their righteous tradition. That's not the first time. In, in chapter 9, they charge Jesus with blasphemy. And then he, they question him, accusing him, why do you eat with sinners? And then the last time in that chapter, you see that they challenged him, why don't you fast? And Jesus tells this parable, a story, look, hey, you don't, you don't, you don't fast when the bride and the groom are around, you feast. And he's saying, I, I am that. All that you've been fasting and longing for is now here. In chapter 12, he, they come again and accuse Jesus for disregarding the Sabbath, to which Jesus responds, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm, I'm the reason the Sabbath exists. It's, it's simply a, a placeholder to point to the rest that I will ultimately give. And then they accuse him two different times in chapter 9 and chapter 12 for colluding with the devil to cast out demons. But notice, Jesus doesn't answer. That's kind of his thing. Instead, he counters. In fact, it is actually they who are at fault. For their traditions, according to verse 3, 4, 5, and 6, have nullified, he said, God's law. Had emptied or made vain God's word to them. And as a result, what they have done, he accuses them in verse 7, you hypocrites. Now, I won't go too far into depth in this. This word will show up again uh, toward the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and, and Jesus will go on a litany of reasons why he sees them to be hypocrites. But for now, he says they're hypocrites because evidently they were enforcing what was a tradition or custom as though it was God's law. And as a result, they had elevated their preferences to the level of divine demand. And Jesus says, ultimately, what's going on there is that they are hypocrites. Hypocrisy, he says, which is a fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah. That a people, God sends his prophet Isaiah to say, is honoring them with their lips, but ultimately they're distant. Their heart is far from God. And they worship, but it's vanity because ultimately they're teaching as doctrines, right? Hear that? They're teaching as absolute laws, unbreakable commands when in fact they're simply commandments of men, not from God at all. I want you to see some of the wisdom I think that Jesus brings to the surface here. One is this, self-righteous legalism is always a cover for hypocrisy. 
Now let me define that a little bit. By self-righteous, I mean the belief that you are righteous in and of yourself. That what makes you good is something that is inside of you. Now the second half of this, the second section, part two, is, is a, a deeper um, kind of response to that. But for now, just think of self-righteousness is, is the belief that your goodness, your value, your meaning comes from inside of you. It's the things that you do. It's the things that you accomplish and when you begin to think that, when you begin to think that your goodness, your value, your meaning is a result of something that's in you or something that you're able to do, then the natural response is to look at others and think they're worse. Because after all, if righteousness isn't you, well, it stinks to be them because they're not you. And the only response then is to cover up the places where you are flawed, the places in your self-righteousness as, as you see it that... That are, that are askew or they don't quite add up and, and you gloss over them because after all, they were, a mis- you're, they were a mistake. You're not a bad person. And that idea of self-righteousness plays it out in what's called, we'll describe that as legalism. The, the idea that you can, by obedience, be good. You can make yourself righteous. You can be good in the sight of God by your own obedience or action. And whenever you see that emerging in your own heart and behavior, or emerging around you in others, it is always to cover up hypocrisy. Always. Because after all, if I can get you thinking you're bad and you're not as good as me, then we can distract from the fact that I've been doing this little thing over here that I don't want you to know about. If, if If I can... poor expectations, heap all sorts of standards you'll never live up to onto you, then it will distract from the fact that I'm not even living up to my own expectations. This is how the human heart works. And wherever you see, as we find here, taking our customs, taking our traditions, our ways of being and relating, like our culture, the, the, way, we, the way we do things that, that aren't ultimately derived from God's revealed word, and we, whenever we elevate those to the, to the level of divine law, it is always to cover up how much we don't measure up to it. After all, grace, grace, the unmerited favor of God is what we plead for whenever we look at God's law in its entirety. Just make your way through the Ten Commandments. And especially, maybe if you're in this room, you're not a believer, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or you're not sure. Just begin to think about the high moral standards that the people around you don't meet and how sometimes you don't meet them either. And when you make your way down the list, you find yourself with one of two options. And this is the case every time. One of two options Either you can pour yourself into self-righteous and legalistic religion, namely, do better, be better, compared to them, of course, or you realize how much grace you really need. Those are the two options. And you'll spin around in one until it fails by God's grace so miserably that you're desperate for the other. Welcome. And the result in that kind of self-righteous legalism is always a hypocrisy being covered over, and as he describes it, a godless, meaningless tradition. Maybe that in and of itself is a powerful and profound suggestion. Did you know that you can do something and it mean nothing? 
Did you know that you can do something that even appears by everyone else around you to be meaningful and for it to be empty and meaningless? You do something, but it means nothing. Now, meaning makes for good traditions. Meaning makes for, for excellent customs, right? I don't know, maybe for some of you this, this, this will not be helpful, but think of, in its most sanctified sense, Thanksgiving dinner traditions, right? One of the traditions is just turkey. We don't really like turkey, otherwise we'd eat it year-round. Some of you do, but the rest of us don't. No one would take anyone out for a date for turkey. Oh, yeah, I had a hot date tonight. Yeah, where are you going? I'm getting turkey. <laughs> what? And dressing. What? Right? It's not. That's okay. No, no shade on turkey. That's what makes the power of the tradition of Thanksgiving, doesn't it? Right? Because that's what you do. It tastes, oh, it tastes like Thanksgiving. I mean, there's no way around. It tastes like Thanksgiving. There's, you can't get around this. And, and those kinds of traditions were based on probably good things. In the most sanctified sense, right? Your family all got together. Your family all, maybe they didn't go to work or whatever. They all gathered together. And maybe, like, think of this idyllic scene where you have your parents or grandparents or as many extended family as possible all gathered around the bounty of the turkey, right? You gather around and you celebrate these things. And, and good, meaningful things make for good traditions, but it only takes a few times through them, only a few times before the meaning begins to be lost. And that's why Thanksgiving is maybe a weird analogy for some of you, because Thanksgiving is where your family does not go, and even now, like, as I say it, like an, an angst or tension builds in some of you, like, ah! Uh, and if it doesn't, just know that the rest of your family thinks that about you. You're it. You're the guy. Sorry. Like, I love Thanksgiving. The rest of your family right now is somewhere else going like, oh, they're recovering from it. It only takes a few times through a meaningful custom before it becomes meaningless. And then you become fixated not on the meaning and the beauty, but the mechanics. And then you start stressing out again over the things, the turkey, the food, the dishes, as, as though that's why we gather as though that's what we're really thankful for, right? What are you really grateful for this year? Turkey, right? Like, just think for a moment how the mechanics start to overrule the meaning. Now, I don't know what a custom or tradition in your family or, or life really is, but, but it's possible to do something and it mean nothing. And somewhere along the story, you start doing things, and it's not because it's, pointing to something amazing, and you just start going through the motions. Now, I want to encourage some of you. For many of you, that's right now. Right? And, and I'm encouraging you because I don't want you to be ashamed of that. I want you to own it. This, this, is, what this is what we're like. This is what we're like. And if you're sitting there right now in this room and you're like, when is this going to be over? This is a waste of my time. Good for you. Thank you. Just do yourself and everyone else a favor by being honest about it. You have something better to do with your time. But it's possible that there was a moment where, where who Jesus is and who we herald him to be wasn't just that. So be encouraged. It's disorienting. But often we come and gather in this place to be reminded through those mechanisms of what they really mean. 
knowing that ultimately you can't, re- you can't replace the meaning with the mechanism. Ultimately, every good tradition points to something. It's a herald, a sign, a symbol of something. But our sinful nature likes to replace the something with the sign. And there's something in every single one of us that attaches meaning to the tradition and begins to miss the meaning. This is what these people had come to do. A crash course in what they were doing. We saw this in the Gospel of Mark several years ago. Uh, but they, were, they had allowed a custom to where, as in this, in this, in this culture, where a, a person would get to where it was their obligation and duty and, and a beautiful thing for them to take care of their aging parents. I know some of you are doing that now, right? And so... Uh, in that moment where they were committed to love and honor their father and mother. Again, that's a big deal, which is, which is why when Jesus says, like, let the dead bury their dead to a man, come follow me, that, that's earth-shattering. But the Pharisees had kind of come up with a way that, that these people could, instead of allocating their resources to, to love and honor their parents, they would instead allocate those resources to, to whatever that they were doing in the synagogue. And they allowed them to kind of get away with it. Did you hear that? By, by being able to say, as Jesus refutes, him with, refutes the Pharisees with, that they can say, oh, you know, I, I, I don't have to actually do this. Even though the, the commandment of God is to honor the father and the mother, they've, they've made some sort of exception. And it's in quotes there in verse 5. Did you hear it? As if you would say to your aging parent who needs your help, what you would have gained from me is given to God. And that's beautiful, isn't it? To tell someone you love that you're not going to help them, but invoke the name of God. To use religious, pious language to get out of something. Ever done that? I'm going to pray about it. If, if you haven't come from an existing church background, I, part of my job is to help you unpack your bags. Uh, here's one of it. That's Christianese for no. Hey, would you, can you, you want to, I'll pray about it. Just say no, bro. And so look, they had actually done this. They had actually created a custom where they could look at their father and their mother in the eye and say, I can't help you. I've already committed those resources to God. And you see the hypocrisy here. They had taken something that God has given as a gift, namely father and mother to point to the, the majesty and beauty of God, our father, And they had found a way to, a loophole to get out from under it and then used God's name as the excuse. And that's what we do. Because after all, you can justify anything in the name of your religion. I say your religion because even if you're in this room and I Maybe you're not a Christian and maybe you have no desire to be. I still would compel you to think about what are the things that you have a religious fervor for, right? What are the things that you would die for? What are the things that you would give your life for? What are the things that are so glorious you want to tell everyone else about? Even if it's a, like we saw here with the Pharisees, a self-made religion, a self-righteous religion, one that ultimately points to you and it's a glorifying to you. Great, so be it. I promise you, you have the ability to justify anything based on that religion. 
You're able to look at that glorious thing, even if it's yourself. You're able to look at that glorious thing, even if it's a goal that you'll never achieve, right? The over the rainbow kind of, you're able to look at what's glorious in your life and justify everything in order to glorify, pursue, achieve, get a hold of, get close to that thing. Now we'll see in the second half of this what Jesus is calling us to. But he starts with a rebuke. These people are hypocrites. They have elevated their customs and preferences to the level of divine law. And what we find here is they actually come to the Savior, right? They come to the Savior of the universe with an accusation. God in the flesh, they come to him to correct him. And that's what self-righteousness does. That's absolutely the right thing to do. If If righteousness can be attained on your own, then it makes sense that everyone would do exactly what you would do. And anyone who doesn't is an abomination. But let me encourage you that as a church, here is what this, I think this lesson teaches us. Our traditions are subject to the Savior. The Savior is not subject to our traditions. Our traditions are subject to the Savior. What we do, how we operate, I mean every little bit of it. And so even as a church, the way we do things is not the way, it is our way. We have preferences. We have a culture we want to create because we want you to hear about Jesus and we want others to hear about how glorious he is too. And we want to do everything we can to make much of him. And and we kind of ask like, hey, did did that point towards Jesus? No? Okay. Well, let's certainly don't, let's don't die over it. Uh, But if we need to, let's chop that from the budget first. Did that facilitate more people experiencing God? No? Okay, well then, nice. It's convenient maybe at times, but if more people don't hear about Jesus, then it doesn't matter for us. And we've been asking, right, what does it look like? As as Matthew's been introducing us to people who don't get Jesus all along the way, you might ask, like, what does it mean to not get Jesus? This is one of them. This is like a living parable, Matthew tells us. You want to know when you haven't gotten Jesus? You come to Jesus to accuse him, not to submit to him. This is when you miss Jesus. You come to Jesus and you think you can lecture him. Now, it's fun. Peter's going to do this and other people are going to do it as well. But this is what happens. You look at Jesus and you're like, "Ah, I don't know. I'm not really sure. You're the most famous, influential person in all of history, but you might be an idiot. I know better than you. Right? I'm nobody. Nobody's, nobody's buying my book. Nobody's telling my story in, in every possible language around the world. No one's dying in my name, but I know better than you, Jesus. Do you hear it? Because after all, if you come to Jesus and you have some sort of beef with him and think you know better, then you've missed out, who, on, you've missed out on who Jesus is and what he offers that I would contend is so much better than whatever it is that you are holding on to. Now, tradition appeals to us in this sense because it kind of implies that we can control things that are out of control. Customs can do that. They can be good as a discipline, right? Disciplines and these traditions and customs can be good for ordering the things in this world, but they have no power to to do that which is otherworldly. And these people were coming to Jesus, having elevated their own preferences in the name of their own, excuse me, they elevated their own preferences to the level of divine law. So here's a question for you, and you're probably going to need people to help you answer it. 
Where do you find yourself elevating your preferences to the status of divine expectation? Where do you find yourself like these Pharisees saying, you're dirty, you're filthy, you do not belong because you do not conform to my expectations? Now, here's what I would commend. If you're in a gospel community, these are the questions we want to ask because here's the hard part. You might not know it when you're doing it, but the people who love you, if you're in gracious community, they'll help you answer this. Um, It might be on your t-shirt, right? (laughs) It might be really obvious. You're like, oh, I get that. But where? Where do you find yourself elevating your preferences, your traditions, your ways of being to divine law? And I'll just give you one. As a pastor who, who cares about the souls of people and, and, and who cares for your eternity, here's one, partisan politics. I promise you, I promise you, you can't live in our culture and not, and not, not only just like, hey, this is my camp and this is the way I see it, but I'm actually better than other people and I'm now justifying awful things because I am. Again, and if you're like, no, I'm not, okay, well, good for you. You should, you should help us out. But I, just, I say this as a way to say, this is kind of the air we breathe. This is kind of the, it's expected that you would take your customs and lord it over other people. That's not even shocking. And I just want you to know as a person who cares for your soul a whole lot more than your body and life on this earth, beware, beware. One, you might be covering up something you don't want anyone else to know, and you might be missing out on the beauty, the beauty, the real beauty that comes from loving Christ's kingdom more than any other. But it may be something else. Your religion may be your work, your family, your appearance, your image. Think of it this way. If you, if you want to you think in the most archaic language, religion is what you'll sacrifice for. What do you sacrifice your family for? What do you sacrifice meaningful relationships for? Is it appearance? Is it comfort? Because wherever there is a posture of moral superiority, there will always be following it a lack of grace, forgiveness, and empathy. Every time. Because after all, you'll look like these, right, these, these Pharisees came to Jesus and like, if you guys are so special, then why don't you care about the things we care about? Just like the Sabbath disputes, they they kind of expected Jesus to follow their customs, not realizing that the ultimate goal of those customs was to point towards Jesus. It'd be like a person, I heard one pastor describe it this way, uh, it'd be like a person who was more obsessed with their wedding ring than their spouse, right? Someone who's like, I love my ring, it's amazing, it's awesome, as opposed to someone who's like, I love my spouse, they're amazing. You get the idea? One signifies the other. And when you begin to think one, the symbol, is more important than the other, that which is indicated, you, you trip and fall in this. And you begin to think that the good gift, like a wedding ring, so let's say, is actually a replacement for what God is like and what is meant to give you ultimate joy. Maybe another way to ask it is this. Where are you tempted to think that you're better than those who do not share your customs? Where do you find yourself, I mean, really being, like, you detest people who do this. And again, if you're in my gospel community, you know this. This is just a place where I am right now. Uh, Dropping off my daughters and picking them up from school 
is the book of Judges. Everyone is doing what is right in their own mind. I could go on for an hour. I, I want, I really want to. I want to tell you. But that's because every time I kind of am in that mix and that chaos, I kind of think they should all get out of the way for me. I kind of wish they would all just follow the traffic laws, not necessarily because I'm a cop or a judge or a lawyer, but because internally I'm like, this would really make my life easier. And the hard part that I have to admit is that's a convenient cover for my own hypocrisy. It's easy to not think about my own sinfulness and weakness and frailty whenever you can see how terrible a driver these people are. And it's a convenient distraction from my own selfishness, my own self-righteousness. And this leads us to the second part. He says, then he, after he quotes Isaiah, giving us this picture that ultimately it's not what you say or do in honor of God, it's the place of their heart. And their acts of worship aren't really what's mattering to them. Their preferences are the commandments that they share. And he goes further and calls the crowd and says something powerful. Again, this, this may not seem like a big deal, but if you're a highlighter, this would have made everybody reading this or hearing this, especially anyone with like a Jewish context, they would have immediately found this to be offensive, which is funny because Peter asks just that. He calls the people, so you get that, he, he calls a crowd and he says, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Now this is important because what goes into the mouth, what you eat, is very important for the Jewish context that Matthew's writing to, and even the Jewish context from, what, from whence he's come. In fact, when Mark, when Mark tells this story, Mark is inspired by God to even add, by this he was declaring all foods clean. Now, crash course here again on clean and unclean foods, but God had set aside a people that is the nation of of Israel, these people set aside for a holy purpose so that through them the Messiah would come. Through this special people, a, a deliverer, a Messiah, a Savior would come for all the nations. And yet, what we're seeing here is that these customs are coming to an end because the thing to which they are pointing is there, right? Drop the ring, the, the spouse is here. And so here, Jesus has come, the customs were pointing to what Jesus came to accomplish. And so therefore, the customs you start to hold a little bit differently. Jesus fulfills all these ceremonial laws. So much so that we see that this, this, this good news of, of Jesus is getting sent to the nations. And you can Google all this in the gospel, uh, or excuse me, it's the second part of the gospel of Luke is the book of Acts, namely the Acts of the Apostles, the spread of the gospel everywhere. And one of the most important things that happens is that Peter gets a revelation that the food that, he is, that he's been thinking is unclean is now clean. I call it the bacon chapter uh, because up to this point, it would have been ceremonially unclean to consume pigs and bacon. And praise God, all the gifts of his grace that he gives us, one of them is bacon. Uh, and and that is, that it's meant to be a picture, right? You're meant to think like, if I can eat a you-know-what who wallows in its you-know-what, then can you imagine what God can do with us and our filth? You get the idea? And so Peter didn't like this at first. In fact, he went to Joppa. That's particularly important. Joppa is where Jonah hid from God's mission. Joppa is where, 
where, where, where Jonah went to run away from God. And so you, you hear the word Joppa over and over and over again. It's Acts chapter 9. And Peter's in Joppa sitting there waiting. And you're meant to go like, well, what's he about to do? And then boom, he goes to, uh, he goes to the, the house of a, of a pagan to, to share the good news of Jesus. This is all built into the gospel of Mark, as he tells us. But it's, this is the trajectory from whence, or this is a trajectory that comes from this particular place. That is not what you eat that's the most important thing about you. It's what comes out of your mouth. Now, it's cryptic because he's speaking to the crowds, and that's what Jesus does. Thankfully, uh, Matthew includes uh, the question. Disciples came out and said, hey, hey, Jesus, did you know that what you said was offensive? <laughs> what a, that's just a funny thing to ask Jesus, I think. Uh, <laughs> I think I've, I've never said that word for word, but in my heart I've been like, that offended. Did you know that was offensive? I can just imagine him going like, well, do you not see? And, and then he begins to, to explicate this kind of parable, uh, as it were, that like every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Now, this is a callback to a parable we heard a couple weeks ago, that it's not our job to uproot the true and the false uh, plants of God. That's a language from the Old Testament prophets, but God will do it. it. Anyway, what we find here is that he says that ultimately what's broken and what's evil and what's, and what's wicked isn't just what you do, but it's who you are. The filth that you and I have to deal with is not the filth that comes out of our, excuse me, that's opposite, is not just the filth that we would put in our mouths or the things that we would leave on our hands unwashed. Jeremiah chapter 17 puts it this way, it shouldn't shock us. The heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? He's already said that these people's hearts are far from me, but then he says that ultimately that it is what comes out of our heart that reveals our wickedness and uncleanness. And so I have, I have some profound things I want you to see here. This might be one of the most powerful things in the entirety of the New Testament. The thought that what's most problematic about you is not the things that you've done or even the things that have been done to you. The most, problem, prob, the most problematic thing about you before a holy and righteous God is you. It's you. Now, there are lots of ways to illustrate this, but think for me, think with me just for a moment. No one has disappointed you like you have. No one's let you down. No one's lied to you. No one's broken promises. No one's deceived you like you. And that might seem like an awful and harsh thing. In fact, many of you are like, man, I brought my friend here. Now you're telling this? Hang with me. Hang with me. Jesus, I want you to see from the beginning here, Jesus is like a good physician. Not like he is a good physician. The Bible calls him that letter. Jesus is a good physician. He's only diagnosing that which he has come to heal. So hang with me. He wants to make sure you hear just how deep the problem goes. And so he says, like, these people over here are, are fighting over their customs and missing that their hearts are full of hypocrisy. Like Isaiah said, they're, they're doing the things on the surface, ignoring the fact that underneath their hearts are far from God. They're liars and hypocrites. Here's how I would tell you you can begin to measure this. Are you able to tell the ugly truth about yourself? I think there's a question before that probably that a gracious community would ask. Do you, are you even aware? <laughs> are you even aware of the ugly truths about yourself? 
Are you able to tell the ugly truth about yourself? When I tell you that, like, hey, man, the, the person who's disappointed you, the person who's deceived you the most is you, do you find, is there something in you that goes like, well, I mean, right? Do, do you feel like in the first section that kind of self-righteousness, well, at least I'm not like them, right? Can you always think of someone who's worse or who, who's worse than you? In, an event, in, in that event, you're, you're afraid of the ugly truth about yourself. You don't want to admit how much hurt you've caused. Now, again, that isn't to say that maybe awful things have happened to you. I know for many of you, your own story is a story of harm and wounds that have been perpetrated against you. And I, I, this, this isn't to dismiss or deny any of that. It's to say, even in light of that, even in light of that, the greatest need that you have is that you cannot stand before a holy and righteous God. That's what the story of, in this case, I, I encourage you, and this will sound weird, to read Leviticus a book that's entirely about how holy God is and how we can't approach him unclean. Because the most awful thing about us is us. These things come out. And the places where we are denying that are places where we are missing out on the healing and grace that God gives. Practically, maybe another way to ask this, where are you tempted to present a photoshopped version of yourself? Where are you tempted to portray yourself in the most positive light? Because I want you to hear the good news. I want you to hear the absolute good news. And for some of you, this will be the most satisfying thing you hear all day. Jesus knows you, the real you. Now, if you're a millennial or a Gen Z, you're really going to love this, right? Because he says out of the heart, that, is a, that word heart is, is, is where our motives come from. It's this kind of all-encompassing. He's not a cardiologist here. It's where your motives, your thoughts, your, like, your, your fears, your ambitions, your loves, your hates, your secrets, all of these things, they all emerge from what the Bible calls the heart, the you, the real you. And so again, if you're a Gen Zer or uh, you would hear this as your authentic self, and I get to give you the good news, Jesus knows your authentic self. He knows the real you, all of it. You know that moment where you were doing that thing that you don't want anyone else to find out about it? Jesus was there. He saw the whole thing as it took place. And yet still offers himself in order to welcome us into the presence of the Father. Friend, Jesus knows the real you, the actual you, not the photoshopped you. And here's the thing, down deep, some, you, you know that's what you want. You just wish someone would see you. You wish someone would understand you. And here's the hard part. It comes with bad news first. Jesus knows the real you, the corrupt you. And while that might be a means of disqualification for self-righteous people you know, or just anyone who are like, ooh, you're too much of a mess for me, Jesus says, I love it. I'm going to take your filth upon me. So friend, where are you tempted to present a Photoshop version of yourself? Is it possible that you're trying to cover up a place where you know you're unclean, a place where you feel rejected, and cast out. Practically, this is what fuels our mission as the church. We are not a collection of just like religious tag-alongs. We are the people who are known fully by Jesus. And so I can tell you, if, if, you're, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, I, I, I want to say this, this is going to sound weird at first, but hang with me. The biggest problem in your life is you. 
It really is. Now, elsewhere, the Proverbs tell us that, that like, the wounds of a, uh, like, faithful to wounds of a friend, someone who's willing to tell you the truth about yourself is, is someone who loves and cares for you. The biggest problem you have today is you. Now, on one hand, that fuels, us for, that fuels uh, our mission, but it also protects you from pretense. Because if at any given moment you don't think your problem is you and other people don't, then they'll become self-righteous people and not like you. But when you realize your biggest problem is you and your only solution is the grace of God, you become a fairly kind and welcoming person. Look, God gave these laws just to point to what Jesus would fulfill and conquer. Jesus has come not only to diagnose our deepest problem, our own inability to measure up, but he has come to deliver us from it. And that's why it, this, is, this, is the, this is the paradox of Christians. You should never see a Christian strut. You should never see a Christian pat themselves on the back. We're the people who are just, we've come face to face with how awful and wicked that we are and then realize how merciful God is in spite of it. Think of it this way. We do not become clean by our actions. We become clean by his. Take a deep breath, <laughs> right? Just, just breathe out, just sigh for a moment. The God of the universe saw you in your worst day and it was that day that he came and said, you are mine. And he put his own son on the line to prove it. And so friend, do you always feel the need to justify yourself? Breathe, breathe out. Christ has justified us. By faith, we are justified in him alone as an act of grace. Because after all, here's what I learned from the quotation of Isaiah. Um, if ultimately, then, if, if ultimately the, the greatest meaning is about your achievement and your actions, then you can always justify yourself. Because after all, if your problem isn't your heart, it's just your actions, then you don't really need mercy or grace. You just need another chance. And that's why if you're like me, I wrestle with regret. And regret seems like, it seems like a pious thing, right? I regret having done that. It seems like I could use God and just like the Pharisees, right? Oh, God has given me regret. And, and that would make you think that I actually felt bad about it. Regret for me, maybe not for you, but regret for me is a lie that I tell myself. I don't need grace. I don't need to be made new. I don't need a new heart. I don't need my heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh like Ezekiel tells me that Jesus will give me. I just need another try. Ever heard someone say something like that? I'm not a bad person. It always comes right before or right after an awful thing they've done. Friend, hear the good news that you, all of you, how God really knows you to be, is known fully by God and he has sent Jesus to redeem you, to make you pure, to draw you back to the Father. And it rebukes both the self-righteous, right? Because if, if you're in the first part and you're like, yeah, exactly, the self-righteous punks, right? If that's you, well, did you hear the rebuke in the last part? Yeah, the problem isn't those self-righteous rules. The problem is the darkness of your own heart. And he tells us, he even says, look, your actions reveal the corruption of your heart. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Do you hear it? Jesus actually cares about what you do with your body because it reveals who you really are. And so it cuts both ways. If you're like, oh yeah, the, Jesus sticks it to those self-righteous. No, actually he sticks it to all of us. 
both the self-righteous and the licentious, the people who don't really think that Jesus cares about these things. He says, no, no, it's worse than you think. Not so that you'll experience shame and condemnation, but so you'll see just how good a healer he really is. Your problem is deeper. The problem is the darkness of your own heart. But hear him invite you back. This is where, this is where at the end, right, this is where if a friend tells you this, you're the worst, right? A friend, you're the worst. This is where they go, I'm never talking to you again. And now you see the paradox of the gospel. That Jesus looks at these people and says, you're the worst. (laughs) You don't even know how awful you are. Now sit back and watch what I'll do for you. Sit back and watch what I'd be willing to give for you. Sit back and watch. Jesus is not a prude. He doesn't mind talking about taboo subjects. And he's not a coward. He will ultimately give himself for the people that he loves. And the good news we see here is that Jesus knows you and the real you. He knows you, the real you, and that didn't stop him from taking your place. And you can simply set your sights on who he is. So here's some things I think maybe practically we'll do in response. One, one you need to see how fragile some of these things are because of how prone we are to our own, self-righteous, our own self-righteousness. See how fragile the church is because of how prone we are to elevating our own preferences to the level of divine law. So just maybe part of it, you just see, oh, I see, I see, I see my own tendency to take my preferences and use them as a reason to look down on other people. But for some of you, maybe it's just to commit to contemplate how you've been pharisaical in your view of others. Contemplate, reflect on that. Ask people who love you to begin to help you see that. But then maybe for some of you, it's to commit to contemplate how impure your heart really is. Those things that you did weren't a mistake. They were a reflection of who you really are. And for those of us apart from Christ, that's crushing and paralyzing. And for those of us who have seen Christ, it's beautiful. Because we know that he came to diagnose that which he can fix. We know that he has come to heal, to restore. He only brings these things to the light so that we would begin to see how good and kind he really is. And it makes us free then to not Photoshop our lives. It makes us free to let other people see it because we know we've been fully seen by God and fully and totally embraced by him, made righteous and pure, not by our own actions, but by his. In just a moment, we're going to respond to this amazing story of God's grace and Jesus making us whole and right by, uh, and, and what a paradox, by taking things into our mouths. So you'll see the prepackaged elements around you, and I encourage you to grab those. You might need a friend with, you might need a friend with, uh, with, with fingernails to help you, but I want to invite you to see exactly what this is. This is for baptized, repentant believers. So if that's not you, then friend, join. The the, the ritual for you and for me is not to partake in this. It would be just a really unsatisfying and silly snack, right? It's a symbol. It'd be like being more excited about your wedding ring than your spouse. But for you, it's simply to realize what what I realize, right? To begin to think that you can right your own ship is like thinking you can wash your hands in a toilet. Don't be like me. Realize that the cleanliness that God demands is also the cleanliness he has provided in Christ. And so for you today, it's not to take part in this, but it's to repent and believe, to trust in him, to look to him, and to realize he is all the grace that you will ever need, and it is so richly supplied. 
For those of us that know that and our life has been changed by that, we, begin, we get to take part in this as a, as a powerful act. We get to say that this little piece of bread, this little unimpressive bread, is the means by which, through Christ's body, we are made whole. And this sip of juice is a picture of the blood that Christ shed to make you and me pure. So let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to take this. Jesus, thank you so much that you have provided everything that we need. You have given us every spiritual blessing. You have given us the welcome that we so richly desire. You have given us all the things that we want. In fact, you have given us all the things that we are looking to other things in our life to find. God, help us to see, not, not out of shame or condemnation, how far our sin has separated us from you. Not so that we would be crushed by it, but so that we would be invited to experience a deeper grace. These are not mysteries to you. And you have sent your son, his body to be broken, his blood to be poured out, to ransom us back to you. Might this morning we, not, we might not be afraid of our own uncleanness, but instead might we profess it as the grounds by which we have received great mercy. Help us now to take this small act, this sign, this symbol, in a way that is not meaningless, but in a way that points to the great feast you provided in your body and blood and the great feast that you will restore us with at the end of history. Help us now to look through this and see you in Jesus' name. Amen.